Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. As a reminder, in the book of Luke, chapters 1 and 2 are John the Baptist and Jesus getting born and growing up. Chapter 3, Jesus identifies with humanity in baptism, genealogy, and in temptation in chapter 4. Chapter 4, people try to derail the ministry of Jesus. It doesn't work so good. Um, Luke 4, verse 44, he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. That was the mission. And so he goes on doing his ministry despite distractions. And in chapter 5, so far... He's called this, these disparate group of outcasts to be disciples and to learn and to help him with the ministry because the crowds have gotten so big. So he calls some people to be more than just disciples, but to be apostles and to help with the message that needs to go out. Some follow Jesus, some go to the priests, some he sends back home, and then Matthew, like he comes and he follows too. So then we have this feast um, that's going on, and Matthew is throwing a party. I think he's taking his tax collection money and he's using it for food. Um, I imagine that part of the taxes that the fishermen brought from the big catch are being used in a feast where they can come and share in that. So they, when we get to verse 33 in chapter 5, they is the scribes and Pharisees from verse 30. So Jesus is still addressing these scribes and Pharisees. They've shown up and they've come to fellowship but they got their own agenda and they're there to accuse Jesus they have issues with Jesus and they said to him why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers and likewise those of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink and he said to them can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days so this is the feast at Matthew's house and what they bring is what I would call an accusatory statement. And the language here is that they're bringing a religious precept, but they're not bringing any faith. So they have traditions that they're bringing to the table that aren't going anywhere. And in fact, this religion of the Pharisees has not successfully raised the spirit of Israel or, or endeared a heart to follow God at all. And I think that's why Jesus shows up now. You've got religious people that are uncomfortable with the joyful, passionate fellowship of the saints. They're having a great time. They're, 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 they're in a spirit-led relationship. Jesus is inviting the poor, the tax collectors. Anybody can come and learn from Jesus. And they're just having this big feast. And you got people that they're so sick on the inside that joy itself becomes the thing they go after. Because they're so hurt inside they can't even understand what joy looks like and what happiness looks like. And it's hard to even be in the presence of it when you're that tired. So the weird thing is, why do the disciples of John... So they're using John's disciples as an example. You remember when the Pharisees went out to John and he called him a brood of vipers? Like, at this point, the Pharisees aren't friends with John's disciples, but here they're using them to attack Jesus' disciples. Odd how that works. Fasting. Um, we don't often get to texts on fasting, so I thought it might be worth just going through that. Fasting is generally an act of de denying your own desires. 
to appeal to the spiritual desires. I want these things from the Lord. I need this presence from the Lord. So I'm going to take these things that take up my time, energy, and resources, and I'm going to get rid of them. A lot of times people associate fasting just with food. And food's a great thing because when you don't eat food, you get this alarm clock in your belly that goes off and you get hungry. And what people do when they fast with food is as soon as that hungry goes off, they say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to get alone by spend some time with the Lord. So instead of taking time on a meal, I'm going to take time just with the Lord. And there's healthy ways to do that. There's fasting that's defined in the Old Testament. Um, the point of fasting is not to lose weight. That's just a bad reason to do fasting. Um, the point of fasting is to deny the flesh so that you can appeal to the spiritual. And sometimes um, fasting is an act of repentance. We see David, when he sins, fasts and puts on sackcloth and mourns. So another form of fasting is when there's a deep sin in your life that you're sorry for and you want to repent of. Fasting is a way to tell the Lord that you're repenting of that thing and you get rid of it. That said, fasting doesn't save you. It doesn't make you any more or less holy. It simply is a way to connect to a spiritual life. Um, and it is something we see Jesus do, even though he doesn't have to. He's sin-free, so it's not. you can do it even if it's not sin. Um, but it is something where Jesus was seeking the spiritual side of his life to expand and for the ministry to start. So he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. Fasting doesn't mean starvation. A form of fasting can be to give up portions of your diet. It doesn't have to be your whole diet. So you can say, I'm going to give up sugar for a year, right? And then you have like sugar withdrawal. And every time you feel like edgy from your sugar withdrawal, you turn that into prayer and spiritual life. Anytime you think there might be something that's getting in front of your relationship with God, I think fasting is a great practice. For myself, and, and you guys are going to really think I'm a nerd, there are, uh, probably once a year I'll fast from computer games. Because I'll just say, you know what? Computer games take up a half an hour, hour of my day, sometimes more. But I'm just, these things aren't that important to me. What's important to me is time in the Word. And so you fast from that activity that gets in the way of you and the Lord. When you get away from it for a while and you realize, okay, I don't need it, then it's easier to like, once again, eat food or play computer games or do that thing you were fasting from, but you've made it so it's not an idol anymore. Or if you realize, wow, when I take a break from this, I'm really like, I'm addicted. And then you don't just fast, you get it the heck out of your life. Because now this is a thing that's dominating you. And fasting is a way to determine, is this thing just my entertainment or is it something that dominates me? And you can do that. So fasting, the Pharisees come in. The weird part about fasting is throughout the scriptures, I think we should note this, Matthew 6 names fasting as a private activity. But the Pharisees have made it a public activity. Not only that, fasting is something that is never commanded in the Old Testament. No one says anywhere in the Bible that you have to fast. So it's voluntary. It's private and it's voluntary. What the Pharisees have done is they've made it public and involuntary. And they're going in accusing Jesus' disciples of not fasting when they should be fasting. And this is the thing with religious people. They take their shoulds and they put them on other people. And Jesus calls this a burden. So they come in with an accusatory question, which is essentially putting their burden to fast on other people. And as Christians, we're not supposed to do that. So the rest of this in chapter 6 are kind of Jesus' response to this tone of the hyper-religious telling other people how to do things. And there are certain things in our life that, that are between us and God. There are things in our life that God has ordained to be private. Our marriages, our families, 
These are things that no one else should tell us how to do those things. And we can look for advice, we can look for counsel, we can look from within the body for tips on it, um, but we have it. Jesus uses the image of a wedding to come back. You see how he goes to the image of a bridegroom? Bridegroom is what we today would call the groom, and then there's the bride. And he's basically saying, like, like I'm, the, I'm the groom and the church is the bride. He'll use this image as we go through the book. If Jesus is in the room, I'm with Jesus. I don't need to fast if I'm already close to Jesus. As Christians, we would fast when we feel separated from God. It's been two months. I've never felt, I haven't felt the Spirit in two months. I need to take some time and get rid of some things in my life that maybe are getting in the way of that. I don't feel alive in, like I did the day I was saved. If you're not feeling more alive today than you were yesterday, you've backslidden. That's the definition of it. The walk of faith should be one that grows over time. And if you find that you're stagnant or you're stopping, what's getting in the way of your spiritual life? What's interrupting those things? And it's really one of those things. So Jesus is like, I'm actually sitting in the room with these people. There's no need to fast because they've never been closer to me than they are right now. And so here's this idea. And then he throws in the, uh, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. This is the first time in Luke that he hints at crucifixion and having to leave the disciples. Um, so there's a, a piece there. And it goes with this next thought. Then he tells them a parable in verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. If you're not a seamstress or a sewer, fabric over time will shrink, right? Buy a pair of jeans, wash it a few times, you'll see what I'm talking about. So if you take a patch of an old piece of fabric and you put it on new fabric, as soon as you wash it, the new fabric will shrink, the old fabric won't. What happens is all the seams will tear out. It doesn't work. Then he gives a second example, same idea. Verse 37, no one puts a new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires the new for he says the old is better. Okay, if you're not wine drinkers, and, and I, I hope in America <laughs> we've walked away from some of those things, but... What they, would do, what they meant by wineskins is they'd put them in brand new leather. So as the wine would ferment, it would exp the gases would expand it, and the new leather easily stretches with the wine, and it becomes good. Now, if I take that same wineskin and put new wine in it, it can't stretch anymore. It's just going to crack, and the wine will spill out. What's he talking about? What does this mean? Jesus is making a point that as they are going synagogue to synagogue and learning how to live with Jesus, they're learning a new way to live. And he's replacing a Mosaic covenant with a Jesus covenant. And he's not, and he says it in, in, in very clearly, I'm not here to replace the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And in the fulfillment of the law, there's a new way to walk. So both of these stories probably infuriated the Pharisees. Let's be honest. He's calling them the old wineskin. And he's calling them the old fabric. And their desire to put an accusatory statement and demand that other people fast is a tradition in which mosaic system has expanded into human traditions. And then they're trying to take this walk with Jesus and put it back into that old wineskin. It just doesn't work. So, and then you get this pace of sometimes the old can't be reused in the same way. Fasting for fasting's sake is not fasting for worship's sake. It's not the same thing. 
And if you're fasting because you're obligated to or because everybody at your church is putting a little piece of charcoal on their forehead, that's a religious practice, but it's nowhere in the scriptures to do that. And there's nothing wrong with a religious practice, but at some point it becomes a dutiful action that has no meaning whatsoever because you're doing it because everybody around you is doing it. And then it becomes an act of false worship. No practice for its own sake is actually useful, but spiritual practices for, their, for the sake of getting close to Jesus become useful. In the same way, like we've abandoned labyrinths in the Christian tradition. You guys know what a labyrinth is? So if you go to Notre Dame Cathedral, in the middle of the cathedral, there's a giant labyrinth at the middle of the cross on the floor. whole cathedral is shaped like a cross. And Catholic churches would put these labyrinths in the floor. They would make gardens with labyrinths. But the whole point of a labyrinth is you start at the beginning and you just turn left and right. It's not like a maze where you get lost or stuck in it. The labyrinth has a path, but at some point your brain loses track of where you're at. And you just turn the next turn because it's there. And the idea is you pray through a labyrinth by just saying, Lord, I'm just going to follow your path. And it doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't get how it works. And I'm lost in it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to trust that you're going to get me to the middle of a labyrinth. And so it was an act. It's a kind of a cool idea, right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's not a bad thing. Um, and we've lost track of that behavior. But like I was out at St. Mary's thing, taking a weekend retreat, and I did a prayer labyrinth and I was really blessed by it. I found myself getting closer to the Lord. It was kind of awesome. But I would never take a tradition like that and say that the Bible says we have to do labyrinths, right? Because the act for the sake of me telling other people, it might not have the same impact on you. In fact, it probably won't. So you have to be in the right place, the right time for these things. What we do do as a church is we say, you know, what do you do for your prayer life? How do you do your devotions? How do you walk this walk? And we share ideas with each other. Oh, I do this and I do that and I do this. The problem is we'd never say, oh, you have to do this. You got to do that. Yet there are believers that do that even today. And they're pharisaical. That's a pharisaical worldview where they start telling other people what they have to do. Praying for praying's sake is not praying to communicate with God. It's a routinized behavior. So when you're saying prayers that you've memorized 30 million times to hope that somehow more multitude of prayers will have a result, that doesn't work. But an honest, sincere prayer to God, there's nothing better in the world than prayer time with God. Honestly, it brings peace. It, bring, it lowers anxiety. You feel a presence sometimes. Um, it's wonderful. There are so many people, though, that'll still say, verse 39, the old way is the better way to do it. We have to do it the old way. Got to do it this way. And it is very hard for people that have been blessed by certain things to think there might be new things coming and that God does new things. So they stop being open to new things. And that's tough. Um, we'll go on to chapter 6. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first so the reason they're saying this kind of progression, it's not like second Sabbath is something fancy. Luke's trying to say there's a progression of events here that have happened with these Pharisees. So on the second Sabbath, after the first, being the one we just got done with, he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? This is, again, it's the same issue. And that's why Luke puts these together. The grain fields and plucking grain. The problem here isn't that they're picking grain out of a field. That's called gleaning. It's in Deuteronomy 23. And God said, out of mercy, leave some stuff in your field. Don't get everything out. So when people are walking, they can grab a few pieces of grain and, and have something to eat. So Jewish practice of gleaning. 
was common. It wasn't the problem that they were gleaning. It's the day they did it on because Sabbath has taken on human traditions at this point in time. They are breaking a series of laws. Let's look at that. They are reaping by picking the grain. They are threshing the grain. They are winnowing it, rubbing it in their hands, is a form of preparation. Those four things the Pharisees said were illegal on Sabbath. The thing with the Pharisees is after Babylon, they never wanted to break the law again because they wanted God's grace. This is the, I think, the, the noble tradition of the Pharisees. So they'd say, here's God's law, but so we don't even get close to breaking that. We're going to build 600 new laws around it. Actually, it's more like 1,800, right? And we're going to follow these laws so we don't even get close to touching the God stuff. But at some point in time, they forgot that these aren't biblical laws. Reaping, threshing, you can glean on the Sabbath. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says you can't eat on the Sabbath. Thank God, right? That you can prepare food on the Sabbath. There's nothing that says you can't do that. So when they say it's not lawful, they're lying. Well, or best case scenario, they're elevating human laws to God's status. And it, or worse, they're actually just lying. But it's not, when they say it's not lawful, they're talking about human law. They're not talking about biblical law. There's no rule that says that in biblical law. And again, like we can talk about, and we look at this and we're like, well, of course, Sabbath is for humans and we can do whatever we want on the Sabbath. That's not true either. God does have godly laws around the Sabbath. And so Jesus teaching in the synagogues, you could argue is work on the Sabbath, but it's not work. It's God's work. Biblically, the Old Testament says six days you shall do your work and on Sunday you do God's work. And we've blurred that line as a culture. So I think like where Jesus was bringing them back from hyper-legalism, we've gone the opposite direction, especially in the American church. We've gone to hyper-permissivism where we can do whatever we want because Sunday is our day. We own it. We do whatever we want on Sundays. That's not biblical either. And so the teaching that Jesus is giving here is an interesting one because he's bringing things back to an actual biblical tone as to what these things actually are. And so Jesus answers them in verse 3 and says, Have you not even read this? Okay, first of all, anytime you say this to academics, I love how Jesus does this. When you go to educated people and say, Haven't you even read this? That's an insult. No matter how you look it up, he's totally, he's poking back at these Pharisees. And I would say that's, they've poked at him with accusatory questions and, and accusing him of breaking some law. He's pushing back a little bit. Ah, so this idea of Jesus being warm and fuzzy, when you say, have you not even read this? That's not warm and fuzzy. Those are fighting words. Like, let's throw down on this issue. Let's stop this argument at this point. Have you not even read this? When David did what he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave them gave some to those with him. Is it not lawful for any but the priests to eat? And he said to them, The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, he throws in that tidbit at the end that just would set them off. That would, or we'd say today that they're going to get triggered by this. So he starts with the trigger. Oh, you guys haven't even read this. And then he ends with the trigger, the Son of Man's Lord of the Sabbath. The example he gives with David is in 1 Samuel 21, if your cross-reference doesn't have that. Not only does God give the law of Sabbath, um, he repeats it in over eight books of the Old Testament. 
He says it again and again and again. There's a the the history the books of history, first, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, they're all examples of nuances around these laws. Laws getting broken or kept. Um, there's a perfect example of eating on the Sabbath and David actually breaking the real law of not touching the showbread. But he breaks it because the people are hungry and he needs to take care of his people. And there's 12 loaves of bread sitting in the tabernacle and they eat this tabernacle bread. But David doesn't get punished for it. There's nothing that happens. In fact, David's called a man after his own heart. And every time David sins, we have a story about it. But this isn't one of them. And Jesus points out a great example from the historical books of a nuanced interpretation of the Sabbath law that's fairly permissive, right? So we have a number of symbolic elements in the faith, but the symbolic elements don't save us. God does. And everything about the tabernacle, the showbread, Sabbath itself, they're all images of our relationship to God. But the relationship to the God comes first. So Jesus could have ended on this note of this, the David example. It's a great legal argument. So you've broken the law, and he says, actually, here's a legal argument that I haven't broken the law. Could have ended on that, but then he adds verse 5. The Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, it's Same thing in 524, chapter 5, verse 24. With the leper, he kind of drops this I'm the Messiah line. And on this one, he does the same thing. He's claiming that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But Old Testament, who's the Lord of the Sabbath? Whose day is it? It's God's day. So when he says the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man is also God. In other words, I'm here and it's okay with me that they're eating in the fields and it's my day. So that's either Jesus is God or he's a total blasphemer. Like this is, and I don't, it's hard for me to get on the Pharisees case with this because if you, out of a lack of faith, do not see Jesus as God, then he is a blasphemer and they do need to deal with him. He's a false teacher. It's their job to deal with that. Problem is they don't come at it with an open heart. They walked in the door with accusations. So they're unable to see what's going on in front of them. If they had studied the word, they would see that God was God. Exodus 20 verse, Exodus 20 verse 10, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. God is the Lord of the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5.12, keep the Sabbath day and sanctify it as the Lord your God has commanded it. So when he says the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath, he's clearly saying, I'm God. But he's doing it in a way that they can't quote him, right? And he uses this Son of Man phrase because it's one that will prolong crucifixion for a little bit of time. Then, now it happened on another Sabbath. So again, Luke's giving a prog progression of Sabbaths. It seems that Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath. Also, that he entered the synagogue and taught. This is a regular pattern for Jesus and, and, and for Jesus, and Luke has said that this is his custom. He would go into the Sabbath and he would teach on the Sabbath. So if you want to hear from Jesus, go find him on, on Sabbath day. Even after he's getting friction from the Pharisees, he still goes into the synagogue, verse 6. I think this is great. He's got nothing to be ashamed of. He doesn't run from these people. He doesn't avoid these people. He goes right back into the synagogue and he starts teaching again. So he maintains his Sabbath practices he respects the Sabbath, even though he's the Lord of it. He's still, again, modeling a perfect human life. He still does exactly what he would tell his followers to do. Keep the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Make it sacred. Set it apart, which is the word for consecration. Set it apart as a day that this world doesn't own. God owns my Sabbath. Nobody else does. 
And that's an amazing evangelistic tool. I got this thing. It's on Sunday. Sorry, I can't make it. That's Sabbath. What do you mean you can't make it? You have to go to this thing. Watch how that happens in your life. Look at the people that will demand God's day in a way that they don't have ownership of that day. It's not their day to, to take from you. And to be able to just say, no, that's my Sabbath, actually shows those people that you follow, you have a faith that actually means something versus you throw your faith out the door whenever anybody wants something of it. And so Sabbath becomes this thing that we see Jesus modeling him going in every Sunday, or I'm sorry, Saturday with the Jews, goes in every Sabbath and, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. That's God's work is to teach the scriptures. So he does it. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and the Pharisees watched him closely. Again, can you imagine the heart of these folks? They're just, they're using a maimed person to make accusations. This is sick. But they've escalated their attacks. They don't even have a heart to see what comes next. Whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find accusation against him. So at this point, they just, not only are they not enjoying a feast where people are having fun, but they're, not only are they just denying people food in a field, but at this point, they're denying this guy's withered hand from getting healed. That, so it just keeps getting worse in each of Luke's stories. Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, arise and stand here. And he rose and stood. So they're setting a trap. I love this. Here's the thing about the Pharisees. They're assuming Jesus will heal this guy. Why would they make that assumption? Because Jesus heals. It's what he does. Back in the Old Testament when they were trying to get Daniel and because he would pray all the time, his enemies were like, we need to watch for him because instead of bowing to Nebuchadnezzar, he'll go out and pray. So watch him. Watch him do exactly what he does as a pattern. And then they accused him for the very thing that God had asked him to do. It's the same, same spirit, the same tone, to find accusation in people because you're looking for it because you don't like the people themselves. It's evil. And we think some these Pharisees are thinking that they're doing good, but what they're doing is they're using a maimed person to accuse a guy who they know will regularly heal people. And they're going after him for doing good. It's, it's crazy. Then Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save a life or destroy it? Jesus takes the law and pairs it down with expertise. And when he had looked around at all of them, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Verse 10, I think, is key. He looked around at all of them. None of them had an answer for this. But he brought it down, and humans don't like when you get this specific. Should we be doing good or evil? Is healing somebody good or evil? Right? And, and when we take any issue that's in our culture that's all a hot button, if you can break it down to what's good and what's evil, it makes evil very uncomfortable. But even more, in a public setting, they won't even have words to answer that. Is this right or is this wrong? Is this good or is this evil? You tell me. But the idea is they're so twisted in their head they can't do it. So Jesus, I think, almost he turns to the guy and he, he hasn't even healed him yet. He asked the question first. Got no answer. They had no, in other words, the Pharisees, the rabbis, had no teaching. And this is something that in Jewish culture, the idea of a question is to get actual answers, to process theoretical issues. They're not even ready to debate. They refuse to discuss and debate. So his response is he just does the good thing. So if you don't have an answer for me on this, stretch out your hand. 
And that's what he says, verse 10, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And they were all filled with rage and discussed with one another because they're not going to deal with Jesus face to face anymore. They're just going to go off in a corner and make plots and plans. Discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So there's, that, there's a strong indication being filled with rage and looking to do something to him. They're actually trying to harm Jesus now. They're going after him. And so it's escalated from just disagreeing with him to now actually trying to hurt the mission and the, the ministry that Jesus is trying to do. So we as Christians are told to be wise and to be clever and to be smart. When we do ministry, when Jesus does ministry, there are going to be people that don't like what we're doing. And that's okay. And Jesus invites them into a conversation, but they don't want to engage that way. So he just continues to do the good thing and moves on with life. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. So at this point, we have a sense of the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the healing of Jesus, how he keeps Sabbaths, how he takes time to pray. And we see how all these different groups of people respond to Jesus. The Pharisees, arguably, is the last group of people Luke wants to show us. Here's With these three stories, here's a group of people that not only respond to Jesus negatively, but aggressive negatively. And so then he starts to gather a team. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out onto the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 men who he named apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Luke takes, Luke's take here is that Jesus went out and he prayed all night before he selected these disciples. Why would God himself have to pray to do something? And I think it's because God has limited himself to a human body. And in that, he's showing, or any decision he makes, like who he's going to bring into leadership, he's got to pray about it. And so Jesus does, and he does, he limits himself to the tools that we have when we make decisions. We have to pray about things. Jobs that we take, people that we're going to um, marry, right? What schools we might go to. Um, we should be praying about these decisions. And picking disciples is a big deal. Actually, not disciples, apostles. Disciples means a learner or a student. You can see he gathers a ton of those. Lots of people are learning from Jesus. But apostle means a delegate or messenger, somebody that has orders. So here's the thing. Jesus has this many people he's gathered around him. But there's a few that he's actually going to ask to do things. And the church works like this too. We get a lot of people in a church, but when a need comes up, you pray about it. You hope somebody steps up and says, I'd like to serve in this way. And you're like, hmm, answer to prayer. Don't even need to ask anybody. But there are times where as a body, you, you go to people that are looking to serve and minister. And they want to go to the night and you say, hey, can you help out with this thing? We got a need in this area. And you ask about it. So Jesus does the same thing. He chooses 12 the number 12 is important. There's 12 tribes in Israel. Um, it's the number of perfect government. There's 12 hours in a day, 12 months in a year, 12 gates in the new city of Jerusalem, 12 foundations for the new city of Jerusalem. Uh, 12 is the age of learning for the Jewish people. That's the age you start to learn the craft of your parents. 12 is the perfect government. Everything organized well. So Luke clarifies that Simon is also Peter in this passage. He highlights brothers and pairs them together, and he lists the disciples in pairs. 
likely because Jesus sent them out two by two. So when we see these listings, it's possibly because he's gathered them to be a messenger, an apostle, and these are the groups of two that he sent out with each other. In that case, you look at who he partnered with who and you start to see some interesting connections. You got Matthew the text collector hanging out with Thomas the doubter. You know, you've got Simon, uh, Simon the son of Alphaeus hanging out with Simon, the, or James and Simon the zealot hanging out. Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot. So you send out two Judases together. And so you see these connections that he's made or these people that get to travel with each other. And he doesn't split people up unnecessarily. Simon and Andrew are going to tra travel together. We know James and John are brothers. So he takes those family connections and say, you, you guys are going to go serve together because you love each other. You've lived life together. So he uses those family connections. They're a unit that he puts together. And of course, Judas Iscariot, um, who gets the byline, who also became a traitor. All the Gospels do this to Judas. They don't mention Judas without his life's tag, which is this guy fell short. And they just name that. And it's interesting that you can do a lot of things the right way, but there, there are things that will mark you for life, right? And you never really escape those titles. Why would Jesus, Jesus choose a sinner to come into his inner circle? Because he wasn't that sinner when he came into the inner circle. And he still has free will. He can choose to betray Jesus or not. And I think that's an interesting idea that Jesus recruits somebody intentionally after praying all night and he brings somebody that will eventually betray him. Maybe he picked Judas because he knew that was the path that this guy would go on. But I think it's a fascinating question. Um, uh, we'll see that Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus, is not the only sinner. Remember, Jesus told Peter to get behind him and called him Satan. Right? So the other disciples sin too, but they repent of it. They turn from it. They change. Judas uniquely doesn't repent of it. He just regrets it. And he never makes amends. He never fixes it. He never reconciles it. He just goes and commits suicide like a coward. So the idea that he's picked these 12 people, an interesting kind of narrative. Luke, I think, is telling us this because as the opposition grows and the multitudes grow, Jesus brings these messengers in to help do the ministry, and the ministry grows too. Verse 17, now we get the multitude. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and, he, and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. The lady that touches his robe, there's also this phrase that power went out from him. It's interesting that Jesus prays and he's filled with the Holy Spirit in the temptation. And then Luke uses the phrase that power went out from him in doing this. It's the same term that's used for when the Holy Spirit fills us and overflows out of us. And so we see the Bible using these phrases for Jesus, but they're not unique to Jesus. They're also when... The Holy Spirit that's driving Jesus, God himself is driving himself, is the Spirit of God that comes into us to drive us in our ministries too. It's not separated. And so he brings these disciples. All of these multitudes get healed. At this point, the disciples are probably helping with that. And we see a level place in verse 17. So Bible scholars deal with Matthew 7's Sermon on the Mount, and they jokingly call this the Sermon on the Plain. Geographically, when you're in the Sea of Galilee, 
there's a rised area, a flat plain, and then cliffs behind it. So if you're on the Sea of Galilee, it looks like mountains when you look over at this part of the area. But when it says he found a level place, that's because most of the area kind of descends into the sea, except for this very particular spot in the northwest corner. If you visit Israel, awesome spot to visit. It's also a natural amphitheater. I can talk at this tone and people can hear me almost a thousand feet away because the rocks behind me, it's like red rocks in Colorado, form a natural amphitheater in this spot. So Luke's likely talking about the same spot, but then you get into this thing of, well, Luke's Sermon on the Mount and Matthew's Sermon on the Mount have different phrases in them and different stories. One way to deal with that is that Luke's not trying to record it word for word. And Luke is going to people that were there at the site saying, what do you remember? And he's verifying, as he does for the entire book of Luke, as a historian, these are the things that I consistently hear from people when I interview them. So he's recording interviewed pieces where Matthew is actually there by Luke's own words. And Matthew, being a tax collector, was probably excellent at transcribing it. So if you want the word-for-word -word version, you're more likely to get that from the first-person witness, Matthew, than from the historian who interviewed people, Luke. And so, or, second way to deal with this is it's actually two different sermons. And that's not, not, there have been times when my mic doesn't work, which is not today, and I have to re-record the teaching. But word-for-word, word, it's the same teaching, same set of lessons, but I use different words because I'm not just reading a script. Right? And in oral presentation, likely, Jesus gave this same teaching over and over and over again. This is what he taught. And these are the stories he would tell and the parables he would tell. So even though it's not word for word with Matthew, a second explanation is Luke is just recording a different teaching, but it's all the same ideas. Does that make sense? Frankly, this isn't one that trips me up that much, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. What I think Luke wants us to spend time on is Judea and Jerusalem means they're traveling to come hear Jesus. They're, he's a destination preacher now. So it's not just that he's in somebody's synagogue teaching and going place to place. They're coming to him now, so there's a change in the ministry. It's gone, it's gone to scale. They're not meeting in people's houses and Peter's mom's getting healed. They're, the healings are happening in big open fields now. They're, they're buying the big tent and they got to move into that scale. So the scale has changed and the number of people helping Jesus in the ministry has expanded. And the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, those are old Philistine cities, major trading centers. So people are coming from the big city to come out to hear Jesus in the country. Why are they coming? According to Luke, because they were looking to get healed. There's this guy teaching out in Galilee and he heals people and the rumors have spread. And so what draws people is what they think they can get from Jesus. Yet he's teaching a lesson about what they can give to the kingdom of God. And so they're not hearing what they thought they would hear, but they are seeing the healings and they're bringing them there. This is kind of, I think, true. A lot of people, when their hearts aren't seeking the Lord, you can do everything you can do to invite them, but their hearts aren't there to hear it. It's not why they're there. So the whole multitude comes in mass. They just want to touch Jesus. They just want to get close to the power of it all. But when they get there, the teachings are entirely simple and basic. So we get the Beatitudes then. A more edited version from Matthew's. Verse 20, then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and he said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, like the Pharisees have been. 
from when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like matter their fathers did to the prophets. So he chooses the disciples in verse 12. He's going to send them out in chapter 9. This is what happens in between. He's picked his disciples, and Luke gives this teaching that's three chapters long. And they're going to take this teaching, and this is what they're going to go out and share with other people. So we see a comprehensive teaching on how to live. This is what early Christians called the way. Before they were called Christians, they were called the way. And the way is what we read in chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Luke. It's the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So all these Gospels will put this in here because this is the lesson. This is what we need to know. For me, then, this becomes primary text for us as believers to know and understand and read. Um, all of this, then, is reflected, too, by Jesus calling the poor and the rich in chapter 5. He heals lepers and paralytics, and, and then he mentions leaping for joy here. So the stories Luke gave has set up this teaching that he's going to give too. The eating and fasting story in verse 33 that we just read, now he's talking about people that hunger, being reviled by Pharisees. And we just got a story about being reviled by Pharisees. So Jesus lives it first, and then he teaches it to us. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done. He's not asking us to have any encounter that he hasn't had before. And you say in the little back of your head, yeah, but he got crucified. And that's why at the beginning of our walk of faith, we give our lives to Jesus. So it doesn't matter to us if it ends in old age or if it ends in crucifixion. Jesus gets our life. And that's the way he frames it. That's the relationship we have. So Luke shows each of these elements prior, and this is what the Messiah offers. Blessing. The word there in the Greek means happy. But happy, not like happy you just went to a rave, but happy, happy that you have this prolonged sense of a supreme existential peace about you. So when he says blessed are, it's the idea that you have this long-term blessing in your life that covers everything. It's a very comprehensive word. It's a spiritual word. It doesn't mean blessed are you and that you just got a new Lamborghini. It, it means that you actually have peace. And this is the blessing. Those that hunger, the idea, the word there for hunger is not just food. And I think his audience would have understood the Greek difference here. The idea of hunger that in this passage is that of seeking or looking for satisfaction and not being able to find it. Blessed are people that do that. There's no blessing in just knowing it all and going through life like, like you got it all figured out. And then you don't. But there is blessing in saying, I'm missing something. I want something. There's something more to this life than what I have. I've had conversations with a lot of you, and a lot of you have that hunger. But Satan uses that to make you feel ashamed. But Jesus teaches the opposite. Blessed are those that hunger. You will be filled. Do what I'm teaching, Jesus says, and you're going to get what you're looking for. Do what I've asked you to do, and you will be filled. But people often don't endure in doing what God's asked long enough to be blessed by it. Steph and I have talked a lot about tithing this week. It's an interesting concept because it's silly if you think about it. So if you think God gives you everything, our response should be we give everything to God. But he doesn't ask for everything. He only asks for a tenth. He's going to give us everything, and he says, you give a tenth of that back to me. It's a burnt offering. You take your tithe money and you release your grip on that first 10%, the first fruits, 
and you just say this goes to God and it's going to get burnt up and I don't care what happens to it. I'm not going to track it. There's no strings attached. I'm not going to give it to a ministry and then make demands of the ministry. I'm just going to let it go. It's a burnt offering. The other 90% is a wave offering. God, I give you everything. Here's my tithe and that just gets burnt up. And God says, I'm going to give the other 90% back to you as a blessing. So you can just have peace. And it's the only thing in the Bible that God asks us to do where he says, test me in this. Try me in this. But most people, oh, I got to, you know, I got to buy my new set of Magic the Gathering cards this week. I just don't have enough for tithing. Um, I, I need some new dishes. I can't tithe. You know, we always have excuses not to give the burnt offering. And then we wonder why we're not blessed. Keep making the excuses and keep not being blessed. And for believers that live that way and experience the blessing, it's not like the Pharisees pointing a finger saying, why don't you tithe? Like John the Baptist's disciples all did. We just feel sorry for you. You're not getting the blessing. There is a blessing in doing what God has asked to do. It's an amazing blessing. And it's not financial. Prosperity gospel people say, if you give that 10%, God will give it back to you fourfold. Bible never says that. It just says, give the 10%, let go of it. And that God will provide for you in, in more ways than just financial. You'll have peace. Man, I'd trade everything for a day of peace. Just that serenity of knowing it is good. I love my family. I love my dog. I love the blessings God's provided. I, I don't, I'm, I'm chunky in the belly. I'm not going without food. And I love it all, but I don't live for it. I'd give it all to God in a second if he wanted it. You can have it. Lord, you need me in Cambodia? I'll go. And we can dump all of this. It's just stuff. And there's a freedom and a blessing in that. And what Jesus is talking about, I'm just going to read these again. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed, long-term peace blessings are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast your name as evil. He gives a few examples of this, like he's had some instances for the Son of Man's sake. And we're so terrified as people that people might not like us because of our faith. Get over it. God asks you to represent him and be an ambassador. So when you see something wrong happening in love, you say, this is what God says. But the Pharisees aren't coming to Jesus with love, are they? They're coming with human mandates and traditions. That's not the same thing. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. God loves you. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that sufficient? It wasn't sufficient for Adam and Eve. They needed more than just God's love and his peace and his patience. For indeed your reward's great, for in like manner the fathers did to the prophets. Guess what? God's people often run counter to the culture they live in. It's just the way it is. But is that sufficient, right? Do we give to God what God asks for? There's parts that are burnt offerings. There's parts where the blessings come back as a wave offering, peace offering, fellowship offering. You know, and, and we just got done hearing three stories about Sabbath, so let's not miss that. We have seven days in a week. God has asked for one of them. Do my work on Sunday. Do the work of fellowship on Sunday. And guess what? It's just going to bless you. You're going to have more friendships. You're going to have community. You're going to have the blessing of Steph's cooking. 
you're going to get some great Bible teaching or mediocre Bible teaching that you put up with. You will, you will get prayer time with other believers. Even when you don't feel close to God, you'll have people praying for you. Those are blessings. So we give to God one day, and all he does is gives us blessings in our life when we give it. And the other six days, it's a wave offer. You can have those days, you know? Not the apostles, though. He calls these 12, he puts them to work, and they're clearly working more than one day a week, right? Some people are called to the ministry, and they're doing it full time. What a blessing that is. They're also broke. Who cares? Right? They say the one thing that pizza and pastors have in common is at least pizzas, or things that pizzas and pastors don't have in common is at least a pizza will feed the family. Right? But, you know, then he gives the woes, and the woes are arguably the opposite of the blessings, right? Here, verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, you shall, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Whoa, that's a woe? For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Jesus is teaching, the word woe here, same as blessings. Blessings is like this pervasive long-term thing, but woe is also a long-term regret or sadness. And I, again, Jesus isn't coming like the Pharisees saying, you have to do these things. He's saying, man, I just feel sorry for you guys. You're missing out if you're living for money, if you're living to be full, if you're living for the next laugh, and if you're living for other people to speak well of you. Aren't those four pretty solid temptations? I just want people to think well of me all the time. I want everyone to like me. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong is that is that the godless people, if you are pursuing their attention and respect, you are going to have to do and say things that are not godly. The opposites of the blessings are up there. So what do you live for? That's the question. Wealth, satisfaction, laughs, or reputation. Those are four things that people often seek. They're arguably things that the earth and the world would call a blessing. Well, money's a blessing. Solomon had money. Great twisting of the scriptures. It's not what Jesus is teaching. I feel sorry with people that always have money because you never learn to trust in the Lord. I feel sorry for you. There's no blessing in that. I feel sorry for people that never have a hunger. Because you don't know the blessing of having a hunger and having it filled. If you never want for anything, then you don't appreciate when God provides it. Because you've always had it. You're spoiled. I feel sorry for people that are always laughing. Because there's going to be a point when the realities of the kingdom of God hit home. There is heaven and there is hell. And they're going to probably figure that out too late. And I kind of feel sorry for them. You see the difference in a woe versus the pharisaical approach? How Jesus teaches versus how they taught? We always, the earth would say that, hey, having everybody respect you, well, that's a good thing. Everybody regarded highly Jesus. He grew in wisdom and stature and, and respect by people until he started his ministry. Then he gets in, you know, he's, everybody thinks he's great until he starts talking about God. And that's why we're uncomfortable talking about God sometimes. Jesus says, I feel sorry for those people. If everybody speaks well of you all the time, you, you never cross the line of danger with a relationship. You never feel what it feels like to have a connection with another godly person because you were bold enough to introduce that conversation topic. Or how what peace you have when people come at you saying that good is evil and evil is good. And you're just like, wow, you're crazy. And there's a peace that comes over you in those moments. Love your enemies. Luke is sharing this flipped nature of what Jesus teaches. He has a new wineskin approach to personal relationships. So far, 
we're going to see that our goal or the way we walk is to love, to do good, and to share with people. So listen to this. But I say to you who hear, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who cursed you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him that strikes you on one cheek, that's the biggest offense in the Jewish world is to be slapped. It, it, so it's not like a slap like they're hitting you in a fight. It's a slap of disgrace, right? And in the ancient world, that was far more common than what we see in our culture. Uh, to him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everybody who asks you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask for them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Man, what a teaching. This is the way we could live. And when you live like this, it takes all conflict out of all relationships because you don't fight back. So we stand for God, but we don't stand for ourselves. Right? I'm nothing. God's everything. So each of these builds like from an effective or a sentiment in verse 27 to active kind of blessings in verse 28. Love your enemies. Jesus assumes you'll have some enemies if you're a messenger. He's teaching his disciples. If you're going to go out and proclaim God, there's going to be people that don't like it. Get over it. Ambassadors say what God says. And just like the prophets, you're going to say things that people don't want to hear. Or you, people can speak well of you, verse 26, and that's just sad, right? This is not the same as accepting enemies in holy spaces, right? Jesus goes into the temple and he knocks over tables. That doesn't sound like love your enemies, does it? So we have to know that he's teaching disciples about what to do. I think you can turn over the tables and the money changers and still feel sorry for the money changers. But they're not going to do that within the space that's been made consecrated and holy unto God. So there's things that we as Christians build that belong to we as Christians. And we don't need to compromise those things because the world doesn't like them. So Jesus still loves them. In fact, I want to just point this out. He turns over the tables. He calls the Pharisees that they're, they're, they're as good as going to hell. But then on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's love. He's loving his enemies, but he's not capitulating to them. And I think... You see signs around today at protests and things that say, you know, God is love. And you see things that say, like, um, God is not love from the other side. And there's this debate about it. But I, I don't know if the biblical understanding of love has been made very clear. I can spank my child and still love my child. I can discipline someone and still care about them deeply. That's not conditional love. That's actually love to care enough about somebody to not let them make mistakes or to try to prevent those mistakes. So we do good. We bless. We pray. This is how we do battle. We act in a certain way despite how we feel. And this is a, a quandary for many people because I want to be mad at this person back. But you take that feeling and you say, I'm going to just do what Jesus told me to do. I'm going to try to love this person. Try to think the best of them. So verse 29 is to not respond to hatred and insults. So you get the insult slap. You say, I'll take another one, please. That's a weird thing. And this is one of the teachings of Jesus. You insult me on a personal level, but I'm praying for you on the other side. When done well, this is awesome. This is how to do battle as we do ministry. 
right? You're a religious nut. And then you turn around and say, yeah, you don't even know how much I'm a religious nut. That's just the beginning. Thank you. You've identified me correctly. You know, you, you crazy, you and your Jesus stuff. And it's like, I know. And you're invited, right? That's how we turn the other cheek in our society. We take the greatest of insults that come at us. And we're just like, yeah, you know, you're worthless. You don't even know how worthless I am. It's God that gives me all worth. We can literally agree with every insult that gets thrown at us. There's not, because if we've given our lives to Jesus, we don't own it anymore. My reputation and my character is not my own. It's God's. So I give it to God. If you're hating on me, I just hope I haven't gotten in the way of you seeing God. Because that would be my sin. I'm so sorry for that. Think about apologizing to somebody who just insulted you. Man, maybe you did do something wrong. Maybe you did not honorably become an ambassador of God in that moment. Maybe you were inappropriate and they come at you and they're yelling at you about that and you just apologize in return, turning the other cheek. Man, you're right. That was wrong of me. I'm so sorry. That wasn't my intention at all. And to be humble and to do that, verse 29 talks about lending practices. Think about that. Somebody literally steals from you and you turn around and say, how much more do you need? Like you're taking stuff from me. You must need things. So in the body of Christ, like how can we provide for you? You know, it was amazing because when we were doing our ministry, I think it was two, three years ago, all our forks were disappearing. Like somebody was coming every Sunday and taking a fork home with them or throwing them in the garbage. I don't know. So we just brought it up. We're just like, you know, whatever. And somebody in the church came in and they brought like 40 forks, right? And now we have more forks than any. So it's just this idea of like, boy, if you need forks, just tell us and we'll just give them to you. You know, you need some dishes, they're back there. Somebody's already taken care of the need before it even showed up. It's a, it, What's been amazing to me in doing the home fellowship is how many needs have come up, but how God's already answered them before they even get announced. And we just rotate those needs and get them. You know, all we are is just a dis distribution place. You need this, here it is. Not even asking for stuff back. Like, we raised our kids this way. If you're going to loan something to somebody, don't ever plan to get it back. Because then you become the loan collector. Hey, can I get my Barbie doll back? Can I get my Star Wars figures back? Can you, are you done with those? No, if you borrowed them out, they're, you just gave them. Don't, and sometimes people would be like, hey, thanks for this book I borrowed. This is a great book. Thanks for, hey. And now you can be like, praise God, I got my book back. That's great. What a gift. I thought I'd gotten rid of that forever. But there it is, coming back into my home. Don't ask for things back. We know God provides, so we can reframe any insult, any theft, anything that happens to us individually, and we can transform that into a relational thing that we have with other people. You have no idea how generous I can be. What else do you want? They ask you to walk a mile with them, Matthew says. You, you say, I'll walk two with you. You need, a, you need friendship right now? How, mu how much can I give? It's a totally different way to think about our interpersonal relationships. This is not, however, how Jesus treats the temple courtyard. This is not how he talks about civic law and justice happening at a civic level. And this often gets misappropriated to civic level law, which is very clear in the Old Testament as to how that should be run. But Jesus talks about this idea that we can create a new kingdom of God that has a new set of rules that we play by when we do interpersonal relationships. I love this. As we conduct our lives, we can choose to react differently to very common human behaviors. And we can change things. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
when we are sinful at our core, that means we have to change to become that kind of person in Romans 12. We have to become agents of good. And we have to spread that to love, to do good, and to share. Verse 32, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love their own family and their buddies. You know, people that get together and do drugs together, they love one another. And they love hanging out together because they're doing their sin together. What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them back. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? So-and-so is super nice to me, so I'm going to be super nice back. That, there's nothing to That's what everybody does. There's nothing evangelical about that behavior. Even sinners do the same. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive that back, what credit is that to you? Well, I only loan to people that I know will get me my book back. No, you lend to anybody who wants to, you know, hey, you want it? There you go. Or don't lend it right? Have, just have a boundary. So even sinners lend to sinners who receive as much back. This is the way to stand out, to be different. We present a new way to live. Love, do good, share. But love your enemies, do good, and lend. That's verse 35. Hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Here's the thing. On the earth, we just give. But spiritually, we know that it's not that person that's going to give back. It's God that's going to bless us and refill that, load, that up. You can't outgive God. Good principle. You can let everything just flow out because God gave you everything. Don't be stingy. Don't cling to things of this world. Just be free in how you bless and trust that Lord will provide. Some people are great at this. Some people have been taught this by their parents. Some people have to learn it. But we all as believers are supposed to pursue this. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. God loves people before they even love him back. And we should do the same. Verse 36, therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Have people wronged you? Have you experienced having someone do something or hurt you or say something that's horrible? And everything in your heart hates them for what they've done? Okay, that's a feeling. But then you say to God, God, I'm going to put that feeling on the altar and you can have it. Because you've told me to be your ambassador and I'm not here to defend myself anymore. I'm done defending myself. So I'm going to take that anger, Lord. It's yours. And help me to just feel sorry for that person. Help me to think the best of that person. Or help me to just not think about it at all so I can be a person of grace and love. Help me to turn the other cheek. Help me to go the extra mile. Help me to do good, to love people, and to share. And to be that kind of person. So Jesus teaches us to love and do good and share freely and offer that up as a positive action. Most people expect this of Christians, but they never offer it back. I think one of the saddest things I've ever seen was one of my friend's wife had stopped going to church. And when you talk to her about it, she said, well, I went to church and nobody talked to me. They just ignored me the whole time. So I just don't go to church anymore because they're all hypocrites. I thought it was so sad because not only is she putting a, a rift between her and her husband by doing that, but she's assuming that everybody else should be doing what she should be doing. So she's gauging herself against other people. Do you see what I'm saying? So if the behavior of the church is that everybody should be welcomed by somebody and nobody's doing it at this church, that sounds like an opening for ministry to me. Maybe they need a new hostess. Maybe that 
person's wife should have been welcoming people to that church. Instead, she's accusing everybody, but really that's a gap in the ministry that needs filling, and God is maybe calling her to that ministry. Maybe she's the most warm, gregarious person, and no one else in that church feels unwelcomed, but she's not doing it for selfish gain. She doesn't need to feel welcomed in order to serve. She sees a need and says, I'm going to do what I want everybody to be doing for me. Lo and behold, that flips the interpersonal relationships completely and totally. If you want to be included, include people. If you want to be loved, love people. And, and think of others more than yourself if you want others to think of you. It's a totally different way to think about life. And then he says this. Okay, so he's just told you how to live. And then verse 37, he follows it up with, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, again, I think this is the most popular verse to get misquoted by non-believers ever. Like, it is their champion verse. They should make t-shirts and wear it around. Don't judge me, I love my sin. And you can't judge me, because look, there's one verse out of context that I just found in the Bible. Actually, somebody else probably found it for them. Because they don't even cite the whole verse. They just do the first part. The problem with Jesus saying, here's a way to live and to not be fair. Pharisees will say, you have to do that. And I can encourage you as a brother to say, love, do good, share. But I can't command you to do that. Nor, and this is, I think, the balance that Jesus gives. I'm not to judge you if you don't do those things. I'm just supposed to do it. This is the problem with my friend's wife. She was judging an entire body of believers because they didn't act the way she thinks they should act. That's judging. In context, when we deal with interpersonal relationships, I don't know if you're going to heaven or hell, and I shouldn't presume that I know that. On a civic level, God actually commands judges to be in the gate and to execute justice according to his law. So why would God command judgment here, but on an interpersonal place, he says it's not your job to judge? That's because one is civic law, one is the interpersonal life Jesus is calling us to. If everybody lives according to Jesus' rule, you don't need judges in the gate anymore because you don't have conflict anymore. Does that make sense? No. So this is, you know, the mistake here, I think, that people, when somebody says, don't judge me, you shouldn't be judging me, they mistake their own conscience and the Holy Spirit telling them not to do something and they put it on you. That's a compliment. You should rejoice and leap for joy when people get mad at you when you haven't judged them and they accuse you of judging them because you represent the Spirit of Christ in their life. Or a second a possible other thing is that we're making holy choices for ourselves, consecrating, setting ourselves apart, keeping Sabbath, tithing, loving the fellowship, praying on a regular basis, doing devotions, doing all the things God tells us to do. And then people say, oh, you're just a holy roller. And how dare you just assume that we should all be. It's like, I never assumed anything about you. I'm just saying this is what I do. So someone will say, I'm really upset and tired. And you're like, are you doing scriptures? Are you reading the word every day? How dare you judge me? I'm not judging you. I'm just, you. You're the one that's miserable, and I'm telling you what makes me happy are some of these behaviors. This is how I get blessed. But that's not judgment, unless you're holy, unless the conscience is playing in the wrong direction. So to judge there in the Greek is the word krino. It is to separate or put out or pronounce a judgment upon moral grounds. 
at, at, at a spiritual level, it's to damn someone. I'm judging that you are uncurable, unforgivable, and you're on your way to hell for all of those behaviors you've done. Christians do that sometimes. It's ugly when Christians do that. And Satan celebrates every time he can get a Christian to do that to people. You know, when the hippies, before they got saved, we got some tie-dye in the room right now, you know, they were judged for being drug user, promiscuous. They were doing everything wrong, right? They didn't believe in civic obligations and responsibilities. They didn't even wear shoes. These miserable people, and they were damned by Christians. That's evil. That's not what Jesus taught. It's not to do that. Now, if you're a store owner and you don't want people tracking through your store, you have every right to say, this is my store. Please wash your feet or put some shoes on. And they'd put up signs, no shirt, no shoes in service. There's a civic law, but there's an interpersonal law too, which is, man, if you want to come and study the Bible with us, you are welcome. I don't care if you take your shoes on or off. I don't care if you come with long hair or short hair. If you're here to hear the word, show up and hear the word with us and be a brother or sister. The kingdom of God just works differently. So to judge is, I'm going to leave it up to God as to who's going to heaven or hell, but I'm going to administer what God's given me responsibility for too. So there's a difference. Deuteronomy 16.8, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. So that's my example from the Old Testament. So don't mistake the judgment of a civic organization that we have courts, we have police officers, we have laws. Don't mistake that with our interpersonal ability to damn someone to hell or not. And how dare a Christian presume that they know who's going to hell because at one point or another, they were on their way to hell too. Going to hell is the default for humanity. We're all falling in the pit. The only thing we got is an arm to reach out for so that Jesus can stop us from the fall. Or better yet, we get there and Jesus catches us and says, no, no judgment for this one. I've thrown their sins as far as the east is from the west. Don't judge. The judges of God's law don't use their own opinion. That's another thought on that. They're supposed to use God's law and apply it. So even the judges sitting in the gates don't use their own opinion to judge people. They use God's word to judge people. So we can still judge sin from holiness completely and totally and when people say, don't judge me, it's like, I'm not judging you. God says that's not right. I love you. I'm inviting you. I want you to get over it because it's killing you. It's corrupting you from the inside out. You're being destroyed by it. Don't you see that? That's not judging. That's, inv that's inviting and giving people truth. So the other piece is on, on judgment, just another thought on that, is we're going to see later in the New Testament, that in the pastoral letters, Timothy and Titus, that the pastors are instructed to discern and evaluate leadership on certain criteria that has to do with holiness. They're supposed to watch out for wolves, Matthew 7, 15, Luke 10, 3, Acts 20, 29. They're supposed to help others to see right and wrong in their life, verse 42, in this chapter. Or they're supposed to assess people using the fruit, verse 43 of this chapter. We're supposed to be wise. So don't let the world tell us to not judge and then think that that's a carte blanche for all discernment and understanding and assessment of people because it's just not what is being taught here. Again, in the very same chapter, we're told to look for fruit in people's lives. So there's a difference. Verse, seven, verse 38, Give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will you be 
over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Love, do good, share. The woes, don't judge people. Just try it and watch what God does in your life. If you do, if you give and it'll be given to you, good measure pressed down. The word good measure there is, is there, the measures were used at the courtroom or in the, in the courthouse. Judges were told to use a measure of justice and a measure of mercy. So when Luke's using that term, it's a legal term. The measures that you use will be the same measure that get, gets used on you. If you're running around accusing people of sin all the time, that will be used with you when you go to court. If you're running around giving mercy everywhere, that will be used with you when you go to court. So decide what measure you want to balance those things in and be able to do it, be able to look back and not regret how you did things. We are often much more ready to put a strict measure on other people than what we want applied to ourselves. So don't do that. Generosity is a lifestyle, is seen by God, it's measured by God, and it's rewarded by God. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself don't see the plank that's in your own eye? First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. Jesus is a carpenter by trade. A speck, if you've ever done woodworking, is a piece of dust that gets in your eyeball. It's miserable. It's painful. It stops your woodworking because you can't do the work you're called to do when you got a speck in your eye. And a plank is what we think, we would call it a two by four. I mean, this is a comical image that people walking around with a two by four sticking out of their eye. But clearly you can't do any work with a two by four in your eye either. Right? So, but a speck is just this little teeny thing. So really this is, I think this is a freeing statement. When we compare ourselves to other people, we're not obligated to find fault in other people. Think of that. So, but this is, and he's still responding to the Pharisees. Do take note that Luke puts this in order of the Pharisaical approach, where you're running around telling people what to do. Freedom from correcting minor things or policing other people or telling people how to do things or being the schoolmarm to other people. You're not the schoolmarm to other people unless your job is to be a schoolmarm. Then you have the responsibility of these kids. But the blind leading the blind is the idea that, man, we should be following God, not following each other. We are, at the end of the day, not able to see the spiritual world the way God does. A disciple is not above their teachers. Jesus ate with sinners. He touched the sick. He taught the word. What are you doing? If you're like Jesus, you call yourself a follower of Jesus, are you doing some of the things that Jesus did? And he's called you to those things. Not all of them, but some of them for sure. Are you walking around doing good to people and blessing them? Like we're, you know, with Luke, he had a sequence there of three Sabbaths. And after three Sabbaths, there's people that want to see Jesus because he's a blessing in their life. He heals. He helps. Are you a blessing in other people's lives? Do you add value to their life? And it, it's hard to teach that because then the thing you guys are going to say at lunch is, well, Dickers, you haven't added any value to my life this week. What are you doing? Hypocrite. Okay. Have some forgiveness. Have some patience. We're all working on this journey together. and We're all trying to do it. But if you're constantly thinking about yourself and only yourself, you're not doing the work of God. You're doing the work of you. 
and good luck with that. Woe unto you. I feel sorry for you when you're just working on you all the time. Just try working on other people once in a while. Just a thought. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, verse 43, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. We even call trees by their fruit, right? That's an apple tree because it makes apples. That's a plum tree because it makes plums. That's a maple tree because it makes maple syrup, right? We name trees like that. That's a Christian because they make Christ. That's a believer because they believe in the Lord God Almighty and they proclaim it everywhere they go. That's a Jesus follower because they follow Jesus. And that's, Jesus, that's his point here. Men don't gather figs from thorns and they don't gather grapes from a bramble bush. If a good man out of good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things I say? I think this is a plague in the church today. Well, I don't read the Old Testament because that's the Old Testament, and we're now under the New Covenant. Okay, the New Covenant's a fulfillment of the Old Covenant. You should probably know them both, right? And the, the, this idea of treasure and how people work and how they interact and this idea, frankly, verse 46 has haunted me my whole life. It drives me to the service of the king. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things which I say? That's super convicting. If you break that down, why am I not doing what God says to do? And I'm not talking like set 24-7 every day, give every moment of your time, get home from work and go out to preach on the streets. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what God has asked you to do. What has God said for us to do? He said to love, do good, share. He said to give. When, you, when people need things, you just give them. He says don't run around and judge people. Just live your life and set it apart as holy. Don't be a Pharisee running around telling other people what they have to do and how they have to do it. Just do what you know is right in your life and let that be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Receive the blessings of God. He's One of the commands is to be blessed by God. Let God bless us. To give to God what he's asked for. Your tithe, your Sabbath. A respect and an honoring for those people that are in the ministry doing the same. Give him what he's asked for and watch what happens. But most people can't even do those basic things. Those basic things, when me gets in the way, those things go right out the window. Because, you know, God still loves me anyways. But we call somebody a Lord, that's an indication of authority. And they have authority in our life, and we follow the authority that's in our life. I can't call myself an employee if I don't show up for work. I can't call myself a servant of a living God if I never serve a living God. They don't go together. And yet, in the human mind, we convince ourselves, we argue for it, we debate for it. Everything, the reasoning in our hearts from chapter 5, that's what he said the Pharisees were doing wrong. You're reasoning in your heart. Stop it. Do what God's called you to do. Let God bless you. Get out of your own way and stop making your own hell on earth. And let God just show you how to live in a better way, in a more hopeful way, in a more glorious way. You're not responsible for others. God is responsible for those people. But you are responsible to be an ambassador in their life of the way of God and the way of truth and how to live it. That's your responsibility. Love, share, do good. If Jesus says to forgive and we hold a grudge, we're not a follower of Jesus. 
If Jesus says not to judge and we keep judging people all the time, we're not following Jesus. If we say, if Jesus says to love, do good, and share, and we don't do those things, what are we? But we're not followers of Jesus. That said, none of us are perfect in this sense, so I can give an admonishment, but I want to point out, I'm not perfect. I'm working on it. And God, I think, has mercy for that. If we encourage, edify, help, coach, disciple, train, rebuke even, and we love people, that's good fruit. It's what God calls good fruit. But the trick is getting our heart to follow that too. So verse 47, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. But three things have to happen there. We have to come to Jesus, repent, be baptized. We have to hear his sayings, study the word, show up and study the Bible, do your own devotions too. And then we have to actually go do them. We actually have to live what we hear every day. And what you've heard this week is love, do good, share. Don't judge people. So we actually have to try doing those things. That's quite a mandate. It's so easy to be a believer. It's so hard to follow the path. It's narrow. And so many people fall on either side of it. Too permissive, too legalistic. They get lost. Verse 48, and we'll wrap up. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream beat vehemently against the house that he could not shake it, and it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the, the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is sad. Woe unto those people that build those kinds of houses. They don't last. I want to point out a couple things. We've all heard this parable like a billion times, right? So I'm not going to add anything new to it, but this is the way. The way of Jesus Christ is the foundation he's talking about in this parable. I think that's pretty obvious. I want to point out that the, the, the good foundation, verse 46, is somebody who dug deep. It takes more work to do it this way. The natural instinct to live our life for ourselves is easy, and so many people do that. But it takes a lot more work to take a look at our life from God's eyes and to, to do that, to endure things like poverty, hunger, weeping, and haters. That's more work. And it's harder. You're in a battle. And, but we're, and, and in that sense, God conditions us for the storms because the foundation is solid. It actually works. People don't know it works until they try it. To be rich in spirit, filled, joy-filled, unconcerned with other people or trying to impress people, there's a lot of freedom in that. It actually works. But he who heard and did nothing, and that's what I'm scared of. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to come and listen on a Sunday and be like, oh, what a great thing, and then just go out and live for myself all the time. I can't do that. I'm done doing that. And I'm guilty. I spent 35, 40 years doing that. What a waste of life when I could have been doing things for the kingdom a lot more actively. And I've, of course, I know what Hauk's going to say. That. He's just, yeah, but all those things were a journey that led you here. Yeah, I agree with that. I still feel like I wasted some time that I wish I hadn't. I wished I was 20-something and I started just saying all of my life is God's. What a blessing. He'd have gotten more years of my life as a sold-out, all-in believer. And I wish I could have given that gift to my king because I've seen what a good and a merciful king I serve as I get older. Jesus calls his disciples, and this is the lesson. This is the calling. This is what he asks of us. So Lord, I pray for each person in this room. Heal their hearts. Lord, fill them up and bless them. If they hunger, fill them. If they are 
poor of spirit, Lord, help to make them rich in spirit. Lord, if they're concerned with what other people think about them, Lord, help them to just be concerned with what you think about them. Lord, if they are overly anxious or worried or tired, Lord, refill and renew them and recharge them. Help their life to be for you and not for themselves and not for other people. In Jesus' name, amen. you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.